Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Greetings, OnScript listeners. My name is Amy Brown-Hughes, and yes, I'm a new voice on this podcast. I'm delighted to have joined this fantastic group of scholar hosts. Not only am I a new host, I'm also a new kind of host. Some would say even a new species of host, in that I'm a theologian and not a biblical scholar. That's because OnScript is expanding into the wide world of theology. You're going to get to know me and time, but here's just a brief introduction to me. I'm an assistant professor of theology at Gordon College on the North Shore of Boston. I'm a historical theologian of early Christianity, and my scholarship focuses on the 3rd and 4th centuries, where all the fun Trinitarian and Christological stuff happened. I work primarily with the Greek East, and I work on Trinitarian theology, Christology, theological anthropology, eschatology, and women's contributions to theology and early Christianity. If you think I sound a bit familiar, then you have a marvelous memory. I was a guest on OnScript early last year with my co-author Lynn Kohick to talk about our recent book, Christian Women in the Patristic World, Their Influence, Authority, and Legacy in the 2nd through 5th Centuries. I'm delighted to join the OnScript crew, and I look forward to many marvelous discussions to come. Hello, friends. Welcome to OnScript. This is Amy Brown-Hughes, a co-host for the podcast with Matt Lynch, Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, Drew Johnson, and Chris Tilley. Today, we're going to discuss the theological power of images. I have the pleasure of speaking with Natalie Carnes, Associate Professor of Theology at Baylor University, who will help us navigate the complexity of the construction and destruction of images. I first came across Natalie's work a few years ago when I picked up her marvelous book on Gregory of Nyssa, and this podcast is the perfect excuse to have a conversation. We might take a tangent or two in Gregory of Nyssa because I just can't resist, but most of our time today will focus on her most recent book, Image and Presence, a Christological Reflection on Iconoclasm and Iconophilia from Stanford University Press. I thoroughly enjoyed this book, and I'm delighted to get to talk about it today. Welcome, Natalie. Thanks, Amy. I'm really happy to be here. So this is our first podcast dedicated to theology. I'm excited about that, of course, because theology is important to me in my own understanding and speaking of God, as well as the shape of my Christian practice individually and communally with others. I also think it offers a way forward in engaging with the beauty of the diversity of the Christian tradition, as well as helping us navigate conflict and difficult issues inside and outside the church. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with you because you bring to the table a thick understanding of how Christian doctrine speaks to the complexities of modern life, as you say on your blog. (laughs) So let's begin today. Can you just tell us a little bit about your journey into constructive theology? Absolutely. You know, I I came to constructive theology by way of feminist theology, actually. I uh, grew up in um, a wonderful church, but it had a pretty narrow vision of what Christianity could be that entailed a pretty narrow vision of what gender roles were appropriate for men and women. And I left home as an 18-year-old sort of unsure about where I stood with relationship to Christianity. Mm-hmm. and became a religion major in college and found myself my sophomore year suddenly needing to drop a course and needing to add a new course. And I went to my advisor and I said, 
I have to add a course, you know, today, and I don't know what it should be. And my advisor sort of looked at my transcript and said, well, based on your interests and what you've taken, um, I want you to take this feminist theology course. So I found myself in feminist theology with uh, Professor Sarah Coakley. Oh. And <laughs> yeah, and it was just a world-changing experience for me. And the way the course was organized, the first half was historical. So looking at different historical moments where gender, sexuality, uh, women were an issue in some way. And then the second half was doctrinal, um, where we looked at different doctrines and the kinds of gender, women's sexuality issues present in those doctrines. And the reason the course was so world-changing for me was that it just gave me this really big picture of what Christianity was, had been, and could be in a way that gave me a real freedom. I think I'd always thought before that, you know, feminism was a way to compromise or dilute Christian doctrine or something mm. like that. And that if you're really faithful, then you resist these sort of cultural impositions. And through that course, I began to see the way people across time and space really had to struggle to claim their faithfulness and that feminism um, could be a way of really struggling to claim a doctrine in a more faithful way rather than a less yeah. faithful way. And that sort of really captured my imagination for, for what theology was and what it could be and how it could help us negotiate the world. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, and I think it might uh, speak to my second question, too. Uh, was there a specific moment or two where it sort of clicked for you how theology was not only relevant, but a vital enterprise? You sort of answered that a little bit yeah. um, but at the beginning of yeah. sort of thinking through constructive theology. But as you've, as you've sort of grown in your scholarship and continued to write, uh, what, what other moments have been really relevant for you? Yeah, I mean, I think from the very beginning, I saw that the way we conceive of God is deeply related to the ways that we imagine um, our life together as creatures, and that that imagining uh, shapes the way that we act in the world and with one another. Um, and that um, was part of what drew me to theology, and it continued on and there's been many moments, but um, I did my doctoral work at Duke. And at Duke, I guess, you know, there's a real sense that theology um, matters for how you live in the world. And I just got to see a number of people who changed their lives because of that, who uh, lived in certain kinds of intentional communities or changed the way that they um, uh, thought about their vocation or that sort of put their vocation on the line in order to stand up for a theological belief. So it's something, it's hard to pinpoint a moment or two moments, but because it's always been part of how I've understood and seen theology. But I think at Duke, seeing these intentional communities really brought that home for me. Yeah, that's that's really exciting. I've noticed that as well. And, and I think over the last probably three or four years, just been really um, still working through kind of undoing in my brain some of the sort of assumptions of what theology is and what it's mm -hmm. for. And I see that in my students, right? Like when they come into class and they have an assumption that theology is, um, that if you're not having an argument, it's not theology. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first assumption that mm -hmm. is always made. And then the second assumption is that theology is sort of an add-on. It's what you do when you know what you're talking about and 
um, it's only fancy people that do it or my pastor. And so oftentimes I'm could be the first woman they've ever heard speak authoritatively about theology. Um, but this, this aspect of theology mattering, I think has been a really important move in the, in the church um, sort of, and in scholarship as well, just seeing that kind of reality take shape um, in academia, um, which I'm quite excited about. Um. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that what you name about your students, both arguing about theology, but also not thinking that it's significant to how we are living our lives and making choices <laughs> about our world, you know, because they seem to be, on the one hand, the argument suggests the immense importance, but then right. it's not given that immense importance in terms of our daily life. Right. And it, it's, it's been funny to see how that works because they, they just need me to make that connection between faith and life. Um, because, but sometimes with the argumentative bit, it's almost like, um, they think they're supposed to have an opinion on an, on an issue, but sometimes they don't know how that, why, almost why they're arguing about it. Like, we know this is important, but we really have no idea why. Right, right. <laughs> Which sets up this conflictual frame, right, where, where theology is an arena. <laughs> um, and, and I think especially uh, more recently, thinking for me uh, in the past several years, thinking about, well, who does this allow? to have conversations about theology, right? Mm -hmm. Who gets to be in these conversations? I, I tell this yeah. story sometimes about my first class on a graduate level when I was at Wheaton. And I come from a charismatic Pentecostal background. And uh, Wheaton at that time was, you know, it's been a little bit more diverse now, but it was, it was pretty reformed at that point. And I felt like a fish out of water in my first class. Mm -hmm. And I, there's these two guys that sat in the back and who could just quote Calvin and quote Bart. And it's always Calvin and Bart, right? Sure. Off the top of their heads. Um, and I felt, and it took me a long time to realize that I could even do theology, like huh. without the ability to, I'm like, I don't have that kind of memory. Right, right. I don't know how to do that. And so right. it was a combination of, if I can't argue, so it was apologetics, right? Like a, 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 right. Or a funky version of apologetics, that that's what right. I thought theology was supposed to be. I mean, and it's interesting, the word that you used earlier to describe um, the conversation, which was an arena, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. An arena where theology is done. And that suggests the way that theology and th these kinds of arguments can function as spectacles. Yes. Right? yes. And I think once theology is functioning as a spectacle, um, we start getting into dangerous territory, right? Because then theology becomes a way of sort of solidifying my reputation and mm -hmm. um, my um, self-presentation to the world. And there's already those dangers in professional theology, of course, but um, once theology is functioning primarily as a spectacle, I think we're in real trouble. Yes, I would agree. Mm. So let's get into a little bit of spectacle moving towards sure. the topic of your book. <laughs> so I'll ask this general question because it's a little provocative here. Why do images matter and why are humans yeah. so obsessed with images? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one I think you could answer at two different levels, uh, theologically and anthropologically. I mean, theologically, 
um, images matter because the whole world is made as an image of God and made to image God. And we are made in the image of God. And God gives God's self to us in the image of the invisible God who is Christ. I mean, you could tell the whole story of creation to redemption to eschaton in terms of image. But then anthropologically, images matter um, because they're how among other reasons, how we bring what is distant near to us. Mm. So there's been some anthropological work on the origin of images, and it suggested that the origin is in death masks, right? So the one who was recently lost to us is made present in a new way through these mm. masks. And that that's, the thought is that that's where images began. It's bringing, bringing near to us something that's remote, either something that we've lost or something that's far away. And I think that's a really important part of how we sort of claim our humanity um, is mm -hmm. that we don't just move through time with the past sort of moving away from us. We find ways of bringing the past near to us and what is distant near to us. And that's, yeah, part of how we sort of claim a continuity of identity across time. Oh, wow. You know, I, I, immediately I think of my grandmother who always had her, her camera with her everywhere, <laughs> right? And she kept every image she ever took, like even wow. the bad ones, even the bad ones. And I always used to think that was so weird until I realized it, it sounds, it's a little bit more like this, right? And, yeah. and it, makes, it makes our current climate a little bit fraught, right? Where we take a picture on our phone and then we like literally never look at it again. But we don't have this sense of like taking our taking our film to go get developed and then we have to do something physical with it and put it in an album and then it's there. Right. Like so so it becomes a place now of almost promoting like forgetfulness. Right. Well, and there's no cost to taking a picture now in the way that you had to pay to have a picture developed before. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't take 10 pictures trying to get the best one because you don't want to pay for 10 different photographs to be developed. Yeah. Um, but and it's also interesting the way then, you know, pictures now, um, and this is a different conversation, but it, they can function the way that they're used on social media to, instead of bringing what is distant near, they can often function to put, make what is near more distant. In mm -hmm. other words, by the image becomes a substitute for um, um, the actual presence of the human, that we put up these images of ourselves that we want to substitute for ourself and all of our deformities and, and problems. Right. You know, I... I spent um, a, a few weeks in Orvieto, Italy, a few oh. a few years ago, um, and I was over there with a group of. There were twelve of us: art historians, artists, mm -hmm. theologians um, from you know various various institutions around the country. And um, we we at Gordon have a program there, and so we were able to sort of host this through the Lily. Uh, fellows program. And one of the, we had a very significant moment when we were standing in the Vatican, the museums of the Vatican, in front of the beaut like in the Raphael room, and where we were standing there and having a deep conversation about this amazing piece, the very famous, you know, Jerusalem and Athens, where you have, where you have um, Aristotle and, and, and Plato having a conversation there along with all the other philosophers. And, and there were these tour groups that kept coming in. 
And there was this really large tour group that came in at once and we had to move off to the side because the room isn't very big. And they all walked in the room and immediately put their phones up and looked at the image through their, you know, iPhone and took that image. And then there was one particular person that I watched, the, the ticket that you got from the, the museum that day had a little picture of that central image in that painting of, of uh, Plato and Aristotle. And they put it up in front of their phone in front of the image. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was like this like triple distancing thing happening. And then they all took the, Im- the picture and then they turned around and left. Like there was, it was just this amazing moment where we all sort of stood there dumbfounded and realized that there was really no processing of what had been mm-hmm. seen and any sort of meaningful presence, having presence sense. Right. So right. Yeah. what led you to write this book, Image and Presence? Yeah. Well, you know, um, Amy, you mentioned earlier my book on Gregory of Nyssa, and in some ways it really came out of that, um, mm-hmm. in that when I was seeing how some of Gregory of Nyssa's legacy, I noticed that during the debates uh, surrounding the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which was, of course, the debates around images and the iconoclast controversy, Gregory of Nyssa was hailed as the father of fathers by both the iconoclasts and the iconophiles. Now, you know from church history, that's not too unusual. Every council sort of does this where they try to claim the people who are um, the champions from the previous councils as the ones that are on their side. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting was that Gregory of Nyssa was so, he was, you know, several hundred years before um, these debates were taking place. So why they were going back to Gregory of Nyssa was interesting to me. And then it was interesting because while Gregory of Nyssa is someone lauded by people in theology and the arts generally today, there, um, not everyone so lauds him. So there was a book, uh, a wonderful book by Alain Bessasson that came out called The Forbidden Image on the Intellectual History of Images and Iconoclasm. And it's a very careful book except the section on Gregory of Nyssa uh, compares him to the worst iconoclast, like the Dadaists smearing their canvases with excrement. Oh my. <laughs> it, it's a quite a, a fascinating passage. And so, but anyway, the ambivalence that I saw in late antiquity is then sort of replayed in modern times with the theology and the arts people and Alain Bessasson. So I thought, what is the strange ambivalence around Gregory of Nyssa and the image? Is this something about Gregory of Nyssa being unclear? Or is this something about what images are, that images and what it means to love an image sort of gives itself to this kind of ambivalence? And pursuing that question led me to sort of look at some of the, the sort of unclarities around images in our own world today and to try to pursue that question into what the Christian relationship to an image is or should be and has been. 
Right. That's a great segue into my next question. So you already mentioned this. Obviously, in the discussion of icons, there's the major historical ecclesiological debates of the 8th and 9th centuries. And then again, surrounding the Protestant Reformation about the role of images. And as you say in your introduction, the image marks the distance of these ecclesial families. And you're referring to the Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestants. So in writing this book, how did you think through how you were going to address this oftentimes fraught relationships surrounding images. Right. Yes. So, um, you know, it marks the distance among these ecclesial families because Protestantism is birthed in a kind of iconoclasm um, and continues to have some more suspicion about images than the other two uh, ecclesial traditions. Catholicism is much more iconophilic mm-hmm. Um and the Eastern Orthodox is too, but in a more particular way, where icons, um, they have a particular tradition around icons and the veneration of icons that have a special place in their tradition and sometimes are more and sometimes less, uh, depending on who you're talking to, comfortable with other kinds of imaging traditions. So um, one of the ways I was thinking about this project is, well, what do we do with this? Is there, um, how do we... Um, have an ecumenical conversation here? Is it just we pick someone who's right and someone who's wrong? And hmm. that could be the case, but it didn't seem quite right to me because also these, these traditions of making images and worrying about images spans the entire Christian tradition, even crosses ecclesial families. And so I thought there's something about this iconoclastic impulse that is trying to get at something um, that's true and deep in Christianity, but there's also something about this image making and image loving impulse that's also trying to get at something true about Christianity. And is there a way that we can affirm something about both of these impulses in a way that can bring us to the table to mm-hmm. have um, a more, uh, at least to see what's what we have that's common about images and perhaps to bring us closer to a more common image theology? Yeah, and I felt that throughout your whole book. I felt I you know, I kept thinking, wow, like this is a really sort of great piece of like a, a place where we could come to the table and go, okay, I think this and I immediately thought of some friends of mine who um come from a much more iconoclastic tradition than me. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up in a in a in a uh tradition that didn't really think about it so much except sort mm-hmm. of subconsciously. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But other traditions in Protestantism are very clear on what they think about things. But I thought, oh, you know, this would be a really great book to read together. And that impulse alone I thought was incredibly productive and, yeah. and beautiful. And and it could be a real place of 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 commonality and of really talking about um, some really important issues um, of difference, but also of commonality. And I specifically love how you um, structure this sort of chronologically through the life of Christ. Um, so why don't we get into that more directly? Would you give us a brief overview of the structure of your book? Because uh, the narrative um, structure, I think, is really helpful and give people a sense of what you're doing. Okay. Uh, in addition to the introduction and the epilogue, there's five main chapters, and they are structured, as you said, by the life of Christ, or we could say they're also structured creedally. Mm-hmm. Um, the first chapter um, looks at the claim that Christ was uh, born of the Virgin Mary. The second chapter, that Christ um, um, came down from heaven and was made human. The third chapter, that Christ was crucified, died, and was buried. The fourth chapter, that Christ... Um, 
rose again from the dead, and the fifth chapter that Christ will come again in glory. So this is moving from, um, you know, birth, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, eschaton. And each chapter thinks about Christ's presence in a different way that ends up having a chiastic structure. So the born of the Virgin Mary looks at Christ's arriving presence. Um, The incarnation chapter looks at Christ's abiding presence. The crucifixion um, looks at Christ's riven and writhing presence. And then when we come back to resurrection, that's a new form of abiding presence. Um, And when we come to, uh, we'll come again in glory, that is also a new form of arriving presence. So there's this chiastic structure of presence that um, uh, organizes the book. Right. Which I thought was so beautiful because one of my most significant takeaways for me was how you helped negotiate a much more nuanced understanding of the dynamic relationship of these assumed dichotomies that we have, right? Presence, absence, image, negation, conophilia, iconoclasm. And you do this by grounding your project in Christology. And so I want to get into some of the more specific connections there. And I was particularly struck by Uh, your work on the cross as an image of iconoclasm. So um, I know I'd mentioned to you that I'd love to read, have you read a section here. Would you read um, on page 99, just that section? um, Sure, absolutely. Christ on the cross breaks brokenness itself. The cross is God's refusal to let violence be determinative. For on the cross, Christ reveals God to be love all the way down. Christ shows that love is not so shallowly rooted in the universe that it can be pulled out by trial and torture. This is a love so deeply embedded in the fabric of the cosmos that even death cannot alter it. To break the one who is love itself simply discloses the depths of that love that moves the universe. One might say that on the cross, Christ is the rock of love, and the power of death is the wave that breaks against the rock. For Christ to break brokenness means that Christ is present even to rivenness itself. Red is an activity of Christ. The cross is a hopeful act of iconoclasm. It is important to hold the cross as image and as iconoclastic act together. So beautiful. It it provoked, actually, when I was reading it, just a a moment, a worshipful moment Mm -hmm. for me. I was thinking about this. Um, And I want to come back to the, the hope that you talk about in a moment. But before that, I think this is a good example of your examination of iconoclasm. Can you spend some time talking about some of your nuanced discussion of iconoclasm and what sort of how you built to that moment? Absolutely. So iconoclasm literally means the breaking of images, but we don't use it literally very often. (laughs) And even when we refer to the Byzantine iconoclastic controversy, Um, people weren't usually breaking images at that time. They were taking them down, they were removing them and replacing them with images of crosses. Um, And during the time, the word that was actually used was iconomach rather than iconoclast. Iconoclast was a term that came um, into prominence in historiography about Reformation iconoclasm. But we use iconoclast in all kinds of ways today to refer to something like, for example, I don't know if you remember this, but right after Pope Francis became Pope, he had a Maundy Thursday service where he washed the feet of a Muslim woman. And many people called that an iconoclastic act. Oh, I do remember that. Yes, right. And um, 
Um, and the idea was that it was iconoclastic because it was breaking some sort of um, tradition, some sort of vision of what Maundy Thursday was supposed to do or how this act was supposed to look. But it was, of course, not doing this iconoclastic act in a destructive way. It was doing it in a way that was um, attempting to sort of renew the vision of what Maundy Thursday was about, not destroy the vision of what Maundy Thursday was about. To me, it's very resonant with, um, you know, uh, Christ's uh, turning over the tables of the money changers in the temple or Christ um, um, eating grain on the Sabbath and it breaking a rule um, for the Pharisees about what you're supposed to do on the Sabbath. But for him, it's a renewal of the vision of what the Sabbath is about. Um, Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for the Sabbath, right? So anyway, so I'm trying to take this wide cultural understanding of what iconoclasm is um, to help us think more about um, our relationship with images and images I see as things that give more than they are that an image um, has at its heart a negation it both is and is not what it presents so um, if I have a picture of my mother I might say look this is my mother but I mean this both is and is not my mother in some way and so there's this negation at the heart of images that iconoclasm can be a mimicry of, right? Mm -hmm. Iconoclasm can be an externalization of this internal negation. So the idea is when an image stops imaging the divine, when it becomes an idol, then iconoclasm can be a way of attempting to renew what that image is supposed to present to us. In the case of the Maundy Thursday, we might say that that's what's happening with Pope Francis and the Maundy Thursday foot washing. We mm -hmm. might say that's what's happening with Christ and eating grain on the Sabbath. And we might say that's what's happening in some acts of iconoclasm in the church where people are concerned that an image has begun to function as an idol and they break the image to say, God is not here. God is not contained by this. Um, and that that act of iconoclasm can be a way of loving images better not necessarily a rejection of images altogether. Yeah, so interesting. And, and sticking with this for just one more moment, throughout the book, you bring up the danger of the us versus them paradigm. And it sort of calls back to the question I asked you about differences in ecclesial families. And then you give some examples in the book as well um, uh, of, of uh, the Charlie Hebdo magazine mm -hmm. situation with the depiction of the images of Prophet Muhammad and a couple other images as well. So, um, this danger of the us versus them paradigm and, and you relate this to how a Christological reflection on iconoclasm can dissolve this paradigm, this us versus them. Can you walk us through how this can function? I think you're sort of kind of there, but to yeah, bring it right. to moment. Absolutely. So, um, in the case of, you know, the Charlie Hebdo or the, the Danish cartoon controversy of several years before that, um, there was a kind of narrative in the media of um, we Westerners who understand that images are just these sort of tokens and we don't get all violent and upset about them and them Muslims who are iconoclasts because they have this warped relationship with images. They don't really understand that images don't have that kind of power. And that a similar kind of dynamic plays out um, in Protestant Catholic relationships to one another um, in terms of, you know, we Protestants are, you know, don't have this warped relationship to images. And so um, that these Catholic, these 
you know, I kind of feel like Catholics have, and, and it, it can work the reverse with, with Catholicism. Um, and I think part of what I'm trying to do is expand our understandings of the ways that we are, all of us are iconoclastic and iconophilic in different ways. So there's not this easy categorization of distancing them as iconoclasts or them as iconophiles, and we are in this other category. But we're all negotiating these iconoclastic and iconophilic impulses. And so once we realize that we live in this sort of more complex picture of the world, then let's talk about how we're negotiating them differently and what it is we're trying to get at in our negotiation of them. Awesome. Yeah, and I, I think that is so helpful. I think that was, that was a real connection point for me to think not just like with our, between the differences in our ecclesial families, but also interreligious conversations. Um, yeah. And I work a lot with this um, in thinking about Trinitarian theology, right, um, mm-hmm. of sort of the differences specifically with Islam and, and also with Judaism as well. And of how this you shall make no you know image you know got right so there's this sense of how how do we talk about this in a way that recognizes that we actually are talking about god in some very similar ways mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, mm-hmm. and some of the and some of the impulses are coming from a place that we would actually understand really right right um so can you sort of go beyond this a little bit um and draw out some of the hope that you speak of throughout the rest of the book, maybe moving into uh, the, uh, res- the resurrection and ascension sections. Like, would you reflect on hope? I, I found your presentation to be very sort of substantial, not sort of this wistful someday-ness thing, but you sort of grounded hope in a way for me that I thought was really wonderful. So um, I, I, I would say, first of all, something that I haven't brought up yet that is a part of my my own personal hope, but is maybe not in the sections you're talking about, is um, I'm, I'm Protestant and grew up um, in a church without really images. Um, and I married a Catholic. And so um, the ecumenical aspect of my hope um, is really grounded in our life together, um, where we're um, trying to constantly figure out um, what it means that we are part of these two different ecclesial traditions. And we do as a family go to two different churches each weekend and mourn that separateness while also trying to create a common life together that we hope will one day be consummated by uh, a unified church. Um, and so my own ecumenical hope comes out of those, the practices we develop as a family and our prayers and, um, and, our, and our family hopes. Um, but in terms of the, the section on the resurrection, maybe you can tell me more specifically what hope you were talking about. Well, I was just thinking of, um, it was actually off of that section on the cross that you read. I was just thinking oh, about, oh, mm-hmm. about sort of, you know, he obviously doesn't like stay dead. <laughs> it, he doesn't. So, <laughs> so in the breaking, in the, so there's this right. breaking right. and then there's this hope that comes in sort of yes. recreation of right. all things. Right. And the rebuilding and resurrection of the image. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Um, a part of um, what's 
so important about the cross is that it is both an image and, in, as you had me read in that section, um, an, an iconoclastic act. And the revelation of love in the cross comes out of the fact that it is an iconoclastic act, both iconoclastic in that humans are trying to break the image of God, but also iconoclastic in that God breaks the violence of humans, right, and shows love to be more determinative than violence. Um, and in that way, um, I think that I, I had more of an idea before I started writing this book that the cross, were you to end the story with a cross, it's, it's pure tragedy, and it's only because of the resurrection that there's any hopefulness. And I, I still think that that's true in a way, but I see deeper continuities now between the, cr the cross and the resurrection, the breakingness of the cross and the breakingness of the resurrection, mm. where what you see on the cross is already a type of victory of love, right? You already see a love that's stronger than death, a love that's stronger than torture, because it's a love that doesn't turn from its character as perfect love, even in the worst that humanity throws from it. Christ never never gives any shadow of being anything other than perfect love all the way through the cross. That's already a love that's stronger than death. And then the resurrection is like the vindication of that love, right? Where you see the, the, the power of that love to give new life to, to all of us. And in um, following the moment of those three days of silence, you the word comes back to us again, the image comes back to us again, and gives us new possibilities for, for imaging and new possibilities for speaking of the divine. And I think this is really beautifully represented in um, the icons of the resurrection and the Orthodox traditions, where you have um, the grave, which is also the mercy seat of Christ, um, is... Um, is moved away and you have um, the women who are coming to the tomb who are discovering a new presence of Christ in this initial moment of absence, right? I think that that's a really powerful moment that it's in the moment when the women say, he is not here, that we know that Christ is here in a new way. And that's another one of those sort of iconoclastic moments that is actually the giving of a new type of presence, the giving of a, it's it, that he is not here. It's not a despairing moment. It's the hopeful moment. The hopeful moment is that he is not contained by death. Mm, that's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. I'm, gl I'm glad you sort of went through that a little bit because I just had this sort of moment where I just wanted to be like, praise Jesus. <laughs> you know, like, you know, my charismatic self came out. I was like, oh, this is <laughs> and I was just reading through that section because you know, sort of really seeing how um, how we tend sometimes we'll tend to see these as as disparate, disconnected events in the life of Christ, right? And I think some of that has to do with an, an emphasis of how Protestant some Protestant theology focuses in a specific way on the atonement, um, whereas other mm -hmm. traditions will focus different ways. Um, and so a, a sense of there being a pretty, dis these distinctions between these sections, but, uh, but bringing it all together and seeing how there's not, like it wasn't one thing that happened at the cross and another thing that happened right. at the resurrection. Um, right. And even drawing that back into the incarnation and, um, and also forward into the ascension. So, 
You introduce to us several pieces of art, and you mentioned um, the Orthodox icons on the resurrection, which I agree are absolutely stunning and amazing. Um, but you also introduce us to several other pieces of art, as well as, in, as work with some uh, examples of literature and poetry. I was thinking of Flannery O'Connor. Mm-hmm. Um, what work of art, piece of literature, poetry, struck you in a new way and stayed with you as you were researching this book and why? One of the images that my relationship to changed over the course of writing was El Cristo Negro, the Black Christ. So this was, um, and it's an image in um, a statue in Guatemala. And I've gone to one of the sort of replica Black Christs in El Salvador um, a few times. And the story that I've always heard was, you know, it was originally white, piety of the people turned the statue black and look at sort of a rebuke to um, um, the Spanish and who came in the conquest trying to tell them the tell the people that that Christ was white and I always thought that is such a beautiful story but it's one more tale of sort of pious um, half-truths or um, you know I, I as an academic, you learn a kind of a certain sort of suspicion of popular piety, which is probably not great for the soul. <laughs> and, um, but I wanted to sort of research the story anyway. And um, as I, as I researched the story, the more I saw that it was actually historically and scientifically true. Hmm. And that the story, it, it's only been verified in the last couple decades but that this statue was initially white and that people prayed lighting candles heavy with resin and came pilgriming to this black Christ. And it was over decades and decades of that kind of piety that the statue literally became black with the holiness of the people. Mm. And I thought, I, I felt in that moment just very sort of chastened, I guess, that yeah. this is such an incredibly powerful story and so beautiful and why am I suspicious of those kinds of stories um, and the way that God just continues to come to us in these really powerful and unexpected ways in the world? And why am I surprised by that? Why do I suspect that? Um, so I, I carry the Black Christ with me now in a new way after writing this and researching it. Mm. I think you get it up at a place that as um, academics who are people of faith, like there's just sort of this interesting interaction and interplay there that we sort of always have to go through this process, right? Of, mm. um, and, you know, I work with reading the stories of early Christian women, right? I mean, right. really excited to see Macarena in uh, one section of your book, you know? Um, and I think that it's actually part of our process, right? Of, of writing books, of articles, of how to kind of work through the material in a way that we're not being not allowing suspicion to rule us, but at the same time that there's there's real importance of the sort of the specificity of academic rigor and the questions that we ask as academics that sometimes can really I think those two things aren't separate. I think that I had some very profound experiences having iconoclastic moments <laughs> in my own scholarship of, of reading something and realizing an assumption I had had um, needed to go 
actually, and that yeah. what was on the other side of that was actually more faithfulness. Mm-hmm. A, a specific example of this I've seen even in the classroom is when part of I take part of my Christian theology class to talk about the um, the collection of the New Testament canon and how that happened historically, um, sort of, and demonstrating that it was basically a theological process and how that happened. And, and also some, some versions of Protestant students, this sort of makes them uncomfortable. You know, you kind of want to have, well, this is the form, the thing that Zondervan published, here it is. <laughs> you know, that's how it came, and that's how I've got it, right? There's nothing, mm-hmm. you know, there were no steps involved, you know, there wasn't a bunch <laughs> of people deciding what was supposed to go into this. And I think sort of watching them have sort of collect a collective iconoclastic moment but that led them to see sort of how the holy spirit operates in the church in a way Mm -hmm. that they can't quite explain um how that happened i think is amazing so Mm. that leads me maybe to a slightly broader question of writing a book like image and presence or your book on gregory of nissa what is your process as a Mm. scholar like how do you write a book Mm. How do I write a book? That's a great question. Um, well, I read and write together. Um, whenever I'm reading things, I try to be writing about them, just like what my thoughts are and how I'm processing it in addition to taking notes. And then I sort of, some people are really great readers. My husband, he's also an academic. He could read like, you could just sit down and read for hours. I'm not quite like that. I can't take in as much information. I start taking in information, and at a certain point, it's like I feel um, almost pregnant with a book, you know, that I, and I just have to start sort of sketching it out, like what the, what the chapters are going to be, what the main arguments are going to be. And then I try to keep reading and then sort of refining that as I go along. And, um, and then I reach, reach a point where I'm ready to start writing chapter by chapter and get more into the particular literature of the field. Um, and one thing that I've learned um, over the course of the last few years is that I find it very helpful and fruitful to have multiple projects going on at the same time. So um, when you sort of reach a stuck point on one, you just sort of switch to the other and you start working at it. And sometimes you're in a more of a writing space and sometimes you're in more of an editing space and sometimes you're just wanting to take something in. And so having projects at multiple stages sort of helps you or helps me move through um, the processes in ways that I don't just find myself sort of stuck for periods of time. Um, but I've only written two books, Amy, so I don't know. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not an expert. Well, you know, um, I like I, I am gleaning this for myself too, thinking about because everybody's workflow is so different, right? True. So I'm going to move us into our speed round, which is a lot okay. of fun. Okay. So I'm going to okay. ask you questions and just like off the cuff, real quick. Okay. You ready? Is this like Vogue 73 questions? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> okay. Although I'm not going to ask you 73. Okay. Good. So what is one book you've read that changed your life in some way? What? Oh my gosh, that's huge. Just one. Um, it doesn't have to be the, just one. Okay, okay, okay. Um, I'm supposed to be speedy here, aren't I? <laughs> there's, I just, there's so many books that keep coming to mind. Um, 
So like picking um, your favorite child. I totally I know. <laughs> I know. So other books, this, this doesn't mean anything. I'm not saying no to you. It's not like that. Um, and I, this is going to be too, too obvious, but, um, Augustine's confessions, um, in, in part because of the way, um, he makes desire central to how it is. We understand what it means to be human and what it means to be converted to God. And so I, I teach it to my students every semester and hopes that I can, um, impart this same kind of gift that it was to me, to them as well. Another question. Okay. Your, san- your sandwich falls on the floor. No one is oh. looking. Do you eat it? What kind of sandwich? <laughs> Any kind of sandwich. <laughs> I mean, it matters how sticky it is, right? And oh, it matters true. what floor it is. But in general, I err on the side of squeamishness and feel less bad because um, my husband composts it. So I can assuage my conscience by saying God. the worms will eat it. The worms will eat it. Do you think it's important for- that humans colonize Mars? Why or why not? <laughs> um, I would say it's maybe more important that humans learn to live within the gift that they've been given of Earth. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of worry that we're just going to move through the planets like different trash bins in our solar system. So <laughs> I would say first thing, we learn to um, share the, Earth, the planet we have as the common gift that it is. What is your favorite holiday? And your favorite holiday tradition. Now, those might be from two different holidays. Okay, okay. So, um, I really, I really love Easter. Um, I love Easter morning. It's a, a really happy time of moving suddenly to light and flowers everywhere. Um, my favorite Easter, my favorite holiday tradition, though. I mean, I love Advent. Um, the traditions around Advent, and especially like. In my family, we have Advent table and we gather around the table and we, you know, put an ornament on the tree and we um, have certain songs and prayers that we say. And it's always, I I find it difficult to sometimes help children always into the life of the church, but Advent is the season where I'm like, okay, I can do this. We can do Advent together. (laughs) There's so many great recent, like mommy blogs on the internet. They're like, all the Advent traditions ever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, what is one idea in theology that you think needs to die? Oh, an idea that needs to die. Um, well, can I, one that needs to die and maybe be reborn, um, impassibility. I, Mm. I think it's a very important doctrine, but the way that it is expressed where it gets aligned with a kind of, um, deist God, a kind of stoicism is completely antithetical to the God revealed in scripture. And the way that it needs to be reborn is a way that it already exists in many parts Mm -hmm. of the tradition, which is um, as a a love that is broken by neither death nor violence, that impassibility is the other side of vulnerability. So I would say impassibility needs to die, but not to go away, but to mm-hmm. be reborn as vulnerability, which is really just another side of impassibility. I love how you brought in like <laughs> the sort of structure of your book even yes. <laughs> to bring that in. That was nice. Well played. Um, mm-hmm. What is the fastest speed you've ever driven in a car? Oh, well, um, is my mom listening to this? <laughs> I mean, when I was a teenager, probably too young. I remember 90 miles per hour. Not me driving, though. Mm. Mom, it wasn't me. 
Would you be able to talk uh, with the animals or speak all foreign languages? I, I have a philosophically difficult time getting my head around speaking with animals. <laughs> what would that be? You know, like could if an animal if an animal spoke, could I understand them? So I'm going to go with uh, foreign languages. All right, and then finally. Yes. And this is another like struggling book question. So you're just going to have okay. to choose. Okay. Uh, what's the most significant book in theology in the last 50 years? In the last 50 years? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think one of the most significant was Kathy Tanner's God and Creation and Christian mm-hmm. Theology, which sort of reintroduced non-competitive agency, non-contrastive transcendence to the theological world. And that idea has just continued to dissolve so many theological dilemmas that um, people wrestle with. I think that's, oh, that's one really, of those fecund ideas. Yeah, Really good choice. Really mm-hmm. good Thank choice. you. Thank you. So as we are wrapping up our time, I want to bring this a bit to pastoral payoff kind of okay. discussion. So as we near, let's sort of thinking about how theological reflection helps us in our context. And we've talked about um, sort of uh, how um, I found your work especially helpful personally with me and my students. Last year, I was revamping a lecture on the 8th and 9th century discussions in Byzantium about icons. Mm-hmm. I was struggling to help my mostly Protestant students wrap their heads around this. Mm-hmm. So when I came across your entry on the Stanford mm-hmm. University blog about breaking the power of monuments as related to the ongoing fraught discussions and clashes mm-hmm. about Confederate statues. So just to give our listeners a couple of events to have in our minds as we talk about this, I'll give just three examples from the last couple of years. So in 2015, Bree Newsom climbed the flagpole on the South Carolina State House grounds, removed the Confederate flag, and declared, in the name of Jesus, this flag has to come down. You come against me with, hate, uh, with hatred and oppression and violence. I come against you in the name of God. This flag comes down today. And in 2016 through 2017, sort of the difficulty of the city council in Charlottesville um, with removing the Robert E. Lee statue where they had to shroud it in black, which of course provokes Mm -hmm. the Unite the Right rally that turns quite violent. And then into 2018, the Silent Sam statue at UNC, which has provoked waves of protests. Um, and sort of how do we remove it legally? How do we not? And the campus staff removed it after it was torn down with, um, at a rally in August of this year. So based on some of what we discussed today, um, how can we we respond theologically to these images and find a way forward? Um, you know, first I would say that I don't think that there is one way to respond, um, correctly Mm -hmm. and theologically to the images, But I think a particularly fecund way forward is to think about the cross um, and to think about the way that the cross is an iconoclastic act that ultimately reveals the way that it's, that love is what moves the universe. And what would it mean if we took that kind of iconoclastic image as a model for thinking about how to engage, um, images of, of violence or hate or images that function perhaps to, to silence some people, to marginalize some people. And um, 
I, I wonder if it could give us more creative ways of thinking about our life with, with monuments that doesn't end up with trying to make these statues invisible or pretend like they didn't exist, which also seems like a way of denying our own sinfulness, but also doesn't leave them up as symbols of a kind of white supremacy or symbols of uh, a violent power. And so I've been struck by some of the examples I've seen of this kind of creative icon and generative iconoclasm. And one would be the reaction in Charlottesville of the black tarps of mourning over um, the Robert E. Lee uh, statue, which is a way of the statue didn't go away, um, but it also wasn't left there to be a symbol of power. The black tarp marked both its presence, but also it mourned its presence and that this is something that remains among us, but isn't something that we want to continue to dictate our lives together. There was another example of um, someone who suggested that on the st uh, on Stone Mountain, uh, instead of which is kind of like a Confederate leader Mount Rushmore, instead of just defacing it, then instead you put a Liberty Bell there, which would echo Martin Luther King Jr.'s words, "Let freedom ring from Stone Mountain," and this is a way of marking the way. Look, this kind of there's a kind of racism that lives among us. But it's our hope that that racism doesn't have the final word. And this bell marks our hope that freedom will ring even from the most racist parts of our hearts and our lives. Mm. Um, and then there was another um, example that I was thinking about when writing that blog, which was this small town in Germany, which would have a lot of Nazis come through it and march in it. I think because it was like where Hitler was born. And so the, the Nazis were planning a march. And instead of saying, Nazis, you can't march or, you know, get out of here or defacing the sort of sites of Hitler's birth, the response was to turn the Nazis march into a fundraiser to help people defect from Nazism. Hmm. And uh, the, the people called the march Nazis against Nazis. <laughs> And for every step the Nazis took, they would donate more money to this cause. And in the end, the Nazis' march ended up raising $20,000 to help Nazis defect from Nazism. Wow. And I think that's just such a like humorous and creative and powerful way of resisting this force of violence that um, reclaims the meaning and the power of an act in an iconoclastic way that is additive and creative um, rather than being primarily destructive. And that's not to say I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm against destructive moments of iconoclasm. I do think that they have their place, but I think this kind of iconoclasm that witnesses to a power beyond the Nazis or a power beyond violence. And that, that power is one that is loving and peaceful and creative. I mean, those are some of, to me, some of the most amazing acts of iconoclasm that witness to the cross today. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We need to wrap things up, but what a delight it was to talk to you, Natalie. I really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise, Amy. It's been really fun. So this is your host, Amy Hughes with OnScript. We've been enjoying a conversation today with Natalie Carnes, Associate Professor 
of Theology at Baylor University. Natalie has written this book, Image and Presence, a Christological Reflection on Iconoclasm and Iconophilia, published by Stanford University Press in late 2017. I hope that you pick up this book because uh, it was immensely rewarding and stimulating uh, book for me to read, and I know it will be for all of you as well. You'll find a link on our website at onscript.study. Thank you for joining me today. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.